I am Dr. George Solopolis, and you're listening to Reasonable and Necessary, the MBS podcast series brought to you by the Summer Foundation. This episode is in partnership with the MBIS Quality and Safe Cards Commission. On today's episode, we're talking about what good support looks like and what MBIS participants want from support workers. And you know what? It might not be what you think. I speak with a trade university, PhD research student, Megan Topping, and MBIS assistant and the director of Sort Your Support, Carl Thompson. Check it out. Hi guys, welcome to the show. Hi George, great to be here. Hi George. How about we start with a bit of a introduction from both of you. Carl, you're on the NDIS and you also run your own support coordination business, right? Yeah, yeah. So I've been on the NDIS since 2016, roughly. So about six years now. Um, and I've been running running my own support coordination business for about, about a year and a half now. Um, it's going well. Obviously, I was doing things before then as well, but I think, um, you know, being an NDIS participant really helps in terms of, you know, understanding the ins and outs of the NDIS and I can give people, you know, some kind of advice from the ground around how to build their own you know, support team and how to deal with, you know, the NDIS reviews and all of that stuff. Um, so it's going well, yeah. Fantastic. I love it that uh, more people with disability are getting into the the service side of things, I think that it's really, really valuable. Um, so, Megan, how about yourself? Tell us about uh, you and what you do in your research, because that's what we're here to talk about today. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so I'm Megan. I'm a final year PhD student at La Trobe University, and my research is supported by the Summer Foundation, where I also work as a research assistant. So my research is looking at the factors that influence the quality of paid support. So that's support from disability support workers, primarily for people with acquired neurological disabilities. So I'm talking to people who have had an acquired brain injury, a spinal cord injury, or um, neurodegenerative diseases like multiple sclerosis. And I'm asking what they think influences the quality of support. And as part of my broader PhD, I'm also talking to support workers about what they think and also close others, so partners or family members of people with disability as well. But today I'll just be focusing on the people with disabilities perspective as that research has recently been published. Yes, and it's probably the uh, most important perspective, isn't it? I would say so, yes. So what made you get interested in that? this topic of what people with disability want from their support workers? Well, with the introduction of the NDIS, we obviously really expected and hoped to see the needs of people with disability really centre to kind of service redesign and how we, um, what support looks like for people. Um, but I feel, you know, we're almost 10 years on and there's still limited evidence from people's perspective about what they want. Um, 
which is meant to be the centre. So I really wanted to go to people with disability and ask what is it you want from support and from your lived experience, what else can impact whether that quality support is happening in practice. So, yeah, so I interviewed 12 adults with acquired neurological disability in Australia who had a range of complex communication, physical and cognitive impairments and all required one-to-one disability support about their experience and what they want from support as well. All right. So how about we um, have a chat about them? And um, it would be great time to get your um, perspective as well um, in terms of how, how you feel like these things relate to your experience. Mm-hmm. So the first thing, and you know, it seems quite obvious to me, but not always obvious according to the participants in your research. And that was to treat me as a person. Yeah, so you would think that's quite obvious. Um, and it's quite sad that it's something that people feel they have to point out. But um, in the words of my participants, people felt they were treated by support workers as just a job or a number a patient or at the kind of worst end of the scale, someone said they felt like they were just a body in a bed. And this is not the way anybody should be treated. And participants felt they wanted support workers. What they meant by this being treated as a person was to be treated with respect, with dignity, um, with a sense of empathy, which was caveated with not sympathy, empathy. Um, And just in practice, this looks like talking directly to me, not being condescending, not talking for me when I can do for myself or doing for me when I can do for myself. Um, So, yeah, it was mainly about that kind of respect element. And um, one of the participants um, who I will call Ashley, when I talk about quotes today, I will be using pseudonyms. They're not the participants' true names to protect their identity, but... Um, Ashley felt he just captured it as all support workers have to do is treat other people how they would like to be treated. It really just demonstrates that. Just treat me as a person. Ah, so true. Carl, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that's, um, it it sounds obvious, but it's harder to find than you might expect. Um, And I think some of that can be due to the training some support workers might have received. I think often the training is a little bit based on people's diagnosis or, or you know, what support needs people have. So rather than coming from the view that everyone is different and everyone is unique, um, some of the training focuses on, you know, if someone has autism, do this, or if someone has cerebral palsy, do this. And that kind of clouds people's um, views around actually yeah, treating someone as a person first and then working out what supports they need after that point. Um, so I think that's, yeah, that's a, true in my experience as well. And, you know, that body in a bed, you know, that really resonated with me because I I had a friend and she, um, her, she and I used to talk a lot about um, workplace health and safety. And the agency would say to her, oh, this is how we lift things, you know, you're not a thing, I'm a person, and when you move me, this is how I need to be moved, 
and ask me, you know, oh, that isn't how we're, we're told to these things. It's like, yeah, right? That's the problem. Yeah, it's, it's that, you know, realising that people are, are unique and even if they might have the same disability as someone else that they're working with, it doesn't mean that all the supports provided have to be done in the same way or the expectation that everything should be the same. And the other thing that I can agree with 100% is the one around people being seen as the experts in their own care. Can you tell us more about that, Megan? Yeah, and I was going to say that flows on really well from the treating me as a person because as you were talking about there, Carl, about the disability type and that was something people said people make assumptions based on my disability type as you're talking about rather than seeing me as the expert or in how I would like to be moved or how I would like to be supported or all of anything I need support with I know best about what I want from that so this kind of emerged as almost two themes one from thinking about what the support worker needs to do which is see the person as the expert and then the other is that the person with disability needs the opportunity to lead their own support. So they go hand in hand. And as we've said, people with disability are all different and will need things done differently. We'll need, we'll want things done differently. So what this looks like is support workers listening to the person with disability, being willing to learn from the person with disability that they're supporting, not coming with those preconceived ideas, not with those assumptions, not oh, when I worked with this person, they wanted it this way. That doesn't matter. It's what I want. So, um, And some people with disability talks about how sometimes they felt like they were perceived as demanding or too opinionated for asking for what they wanted when actually that's what the role is. Um, so I have a couple of quotes here which I feel will say it a lot better than me. Um, yeah, yeah, I love quotes. So bring up the quotes. Great. Yeah. So I have one from Alex who said, even if the rules seem ridiculous and over-exacting, if I say something's important, just trust me that it's important. Respect my perspective. So, you know, don't do things because you think that's the way to do them when that's the way I've asked. And similarly, Charlie said, you're here to help me. It's not what you like. It's what I like. If I don't like my shirts ironed, don't iron my shirt because you like them ironed. So again, it's, I feel it just catches it. Carl, I know that this uh, is something that we've talked about before, but um, you know, often we we say that people who, uh, when we're recruiting people, we often feel a bit nervous about people who, who say they have lots of experience, right? Or lots of qualifications. Yeah, it's it sounds a bit counterproductive, but but I, I really like hiring people who are enthusiastic and willing to learn, but might not have very much experience or qualifications. And then me training them in the way that I like things done, rather than perhaps getting people who who have lots of experience or lots of qualifications, who might be a little bit more set in their ways and maybe falling into some of those traps that Megan's been talking about in, in the research. Um, so yeah, it is, you know, tricky. Like I don't want to, don't want to discount people's experience, but for me personally, I like starting with someone who has the right attitude and the right, um, you know, willingness to learn rather than someone who might be 
a bit more um, set in their ways and and want to do things exactly their way. Yeah, and I think that um, that's something that I hear a lot, and I I I feel like we're not saying that experience is a bad thing. Um, all qualifications are necessarily a bad thing, but it's like each time you meet a new person with a disability, you need to come in knowing that they're not going to be the same as the person that you might have worked with, you know, 10 hours earlier. And that you need to listen to them and not impose what you think uh, they might want, yeah? Yeah, exactly. Absolutely, yeah. Another key thing was uh, the importance of compatibility, right? And and that that having shared interests was kind of more important than other things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, participants really acknowledged the kind of complexity of the support worker person with disability relationship can be because it's you know it can often be a lot of time spent together a lot of time that's very personal and it's that weird hybrid of the kind of personal and professional coming together in your home. Um, So participants felt it really helped to be the right fit. So find someone that you either, for some participants, this compatibility looked like, as you said, shared interests, being a similar age or the same gender. Um, Whereas others talked about it more implicitly as a sense of gelling or connecting with their support worker so you just get a feel for it when you meet them that they're going to be someone you're going to be able to work well with um and then beyond that there's the kind of mutual respect and communication that having that compatibility really makes you comfortable and means you can kind of have that trusting relationship with someone so yeah and people really did see it as um often more important than most other elements. Um, There was one participant, Sarah, who said when she was talking about recruiting new support workers, she said, never once have I asked to see resumes or qualifications. I really don't care what she's got. I care about how we gelled. So it's exactly what you were just saying. It's that actually those things don't matter. It's what matters is whether we can work together. Um, You know, it's people working with people. Yeah, absolutely. Carl, I was gonna say yeah. Sometimes, um, because I work with lots of nursing students, um, and sometimes the nursing students say, "Oh, you know, this is very different from what I do during my nursing placement." And I say, "Yeah, it is very different because you know you're in my home, you're not in a hospital. You know, the 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 aim is is some of those softer skills and and you know having a place where I can relax and." You know, the aim isn't always treatment or, um, you know, therapy or things like that. It can also just be a bit of leisure and a bit of, you know, chilling out, having a coffee. Um, so it's that thing where some people think that disability support work is the same as, um, you know, nursing or, you know, that, that kind of acute care. Whereas in my mind, it, it, there's some similarities, but there are also lots of, lots of differences and one of them really is around the importance of compatibility rather than just qualifications and skills. Mm. That's really interesting, Carl, because um, I feel the same way and um, I, I do find that um, 
people with a nursing background can kind of make you feel like you're, you're, you're sick and, you know, you need treatment. <laughs> um, and it's like, actually, you know, this is different. It's support work. Um, it can be a little bit more relaxed and and not necessarily um, um, as uh, engineered as, <laughs> as, uh, as say, a, a nurse might 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 work in in a hospital and you know we want to not make our homes feel like hospitals do we yeah exactly yeah it's a very different context yeah i think that's an important thing for for people to keep in mind so how um you you i'm interested in hearing from you in terms of uh your uh experiences have you had any uh, uh, experiences similar to what what we've heard in terms of uh, working with uh, support workers yeah so I suppose you know before I was a bit more actively involved in the recruitment and training of support workers I did run into more of the you know the issues that Megan um, uncovered through the research. Um, so thankfully that hasn't really happened with me as much anymore because I have a lot more kind of control over it. Um, but I definitely have experienced it in the past. And that was traditionally through, through some of the more, um, um, conservative or more, the more traditional disability support worker agencies. You know, my, my favorite example was when I went to university and I had some support workers come in from agencies um they were always you know 50 to 60 and i was you know 19 or 20 um they always wore these you know bright blue um polo shirts um and you know that made me feel really kind of uncool and you know didn't want to be near them and didn't want to be associated with them and so you know it didn't really fit in with what i wanted in that situation but because i was young and and new to everything it wasn't something that i felt like i had much control over um, and that's where some of those you know, issues that Megan has found through research came up. Um, but now, luckily, it happens less because I've got more control over the people that I work with. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that, Carl, because um, I know when you and I really have a bit of a history where we work together at the Youth Disability Advocacy Service. And I do remember working with young people and, you know, they did, talk about that a lot, but they want, you know, people in their own peer group, people who, you know, aren't going to feel like they're, they're from an agency, yeah? Yeah, yeah, and I think, you know, I don't want to digress too much, but it is that balance because yeah, um, even though, you know, I'm, I'm very friendly with support workers and and some of them, you know, I would say that they're, they're my friends, but there is still that professional relationship, so we, you don't want to go down the trap of making you know, of having paid friends, you know, you still want them to do a job and to be professional and all of that, but you also want them to be um, compatible with your own interests and kind of fit into your life in a in a good way. So it can be a bit tricky at times, um, but but yeah, I think it is fair to say that you do want someone that can can fit in well with your life and your own circumstance, and someone who doesn't stick out like a sore thumb. Yeah. Megan, I know that you explored that in your research. I think that 
because it's sort of about boundaries and and uh, making sure that um, people are under had an understanding of the the nature of the sort like a relationship. Um, can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, yeah. I was going to say everything you were just saying, Carl, was really um, resonating with what the participants in my research said, and it was that that it's really hard because, as you said, it's someone in your home and it's someone you want to be compatible with, but it's still someone doing a job. And when those boundaries get blurred, it can then be difficult, especially if you're managing your own support team. It can be difficult because you'll then have this weird dynamic if you do want, you know, if you have a problem with the way they're working or something, it can make that kind of element more difficult. So it's having that balance as you say of the kind of friendliness and it's comfortable for us and I enjoy your company but also it's led by my boundaries like I don't want you to be involved in xyz so I have some participants who really want that closer relationship and then other participants who are like no but when I'm with my friends I'm with my friends and you're here to support me and whatever I need but you're not kind of one of the group which sounds I don't know if that doesn't sound, but that's how it is. And it's that kind of, again, it's led by the person with disability and what their preferences are. But it can be quite a challenge to get that balance right in such a um, kind of personal space, like when it's in your home. Uh, look, I think that what you pointed out is that it's complicated. <laughs> and, you know, this is where communication is really important and then say, hey, um, you know, these are some of the things that I feel like aren't working or these are things that are working and um, what can we do to address some of those things? And, you know, you don't, you, you don't really have those conversations um, easily. They, they can take a bit of practice, yeah? What do you think, Carl? Yeah, it, it is something that can take practice and I think this is where it is tricky because um, you know there is a shortage of support workers at the moment in Australia um, and so it means that you know courses are quite quite short um, they're, they're quite easy to get into and all of that and that that's great in terms of increasing the amount of people working in the sector but it also kind of reduces the utility of some of the training courses when it is actually a bit more complicated than some of the training makes it seem. Um, and so there is that real tension between increasing the workforce supply, but also making sure that those working in the workforce, um, you know, are either suited to it in the first place, um, you know, want to be there, want to be working in there, um, or, you know, appropriate for the individual person that they're working with. So it can be really, really tricky. Um, and it's something that, yeah, you know, we could talk about for hours, I'm sure. Yeah, I also think that, you know, it is tricky. So, you know, we need to also build the capacity of participants mm -hmm. to, uh, to um, have the knowledge and skills and the confidence to have yeah. those difficult chats. Yeah, and, and if I can just you know, add to that, George, you know, one thing that I do, you know, through my work as a support coordinator is, you know, helping upskill participants around you know what their rights are and often they would they would say to me oh my support worker does this um or they say that they can't do that or they say that they they're not allowed to do this or that and i say 
that's not true. You know, you, you, if you have a preference for something, you're able to articulate that. And so one thing that I do is kind of help build their capacity to to actually say what they need in that support um, because lots of people, I think, are a lot more um, shy or less confident than maybe you or I, George, or, or some of the people, maybe Megan, that Megan that you were um, studying, you know, studying, working with in your research. So, you know, it is, it is something that we need to build the capacity of people seeking support as well as the support workers themselves. Yeah, and it's not, it's not uh, something that you will develop overnight. It does take uh, practice and, and, and it's great mm. that, you're, that you're providing that support card for your, your service. Yeah. Then, there are also some interesting findings around the context of within which the support was provided. And you talked a bit about how it can be different when you live in a group home or when you share support. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so some of my participants were living in shared supported accommodation or had previously or previously lived in a group home setting. And it really showed that where people live and how their support is arranged can really impact how much choice they have around those arrangements. Um, so, for example, with people living in shared supported accommodation felt they had less choice around who supported them. They had to kind of take who was there and that was that. Was that. Um, they also felt kind of less empowered to say if there was a problem with a support worker that they were working with because there was that fear almost, almost the kind of culture of the environment where they were like, oh, I don't want to be the difficult resident or I don't want to be talked about in the staff room and those kind of things. So they then didn't complain if there was a problem, meaning that you're putting up with substandard support, which um, that's not choice around what you're, you know, around your supports. Um, and also some participants talked about there being we know high turnover is a problem kind of sector wide, um, but it felt like it was more so in those environments where you just, again, you saw whoever was there rather than had your own team of workers. Um, so, yeah, just showing how that kind of really impacted whether they had those choices around who supported them, but also around their own day. So some participants felt they kind of had to fit into the timetable um, which, you know, we're supposed to be moving away from that in like institutionalized setup. Um, but yes, yeah, some people still felt that. Um, and I actually have a quote here from Kelly, one of the participants who felt they were living in shared supported accommodation and felt it was very much about getting through the numbers and the work as quickly as possible. They won't necessarily spend time on individual pursuits. So again, with that kind of schedule, you just felt like you were another another number to get ticked off. And then, um, yeah, so it's kind of, again, how that environment can reduce your autonomy. Yeah, and that's a really institutional experience that I, I think can be really, really harmful for yeah. a person to have to be seen as a number or to, to someone to... You know, to work through every day. I, I think that the psychological impact of that can be really, really concerning. And, you know, it's why I, I advocate, you know, as a lot of us do, for people to, you know, have the right to live 
you know, in their own homes and not in, you know, group homes and to, you know, be in control of their support. Is that right, Carl? Yeah, definitely. And it, it also goes back to what you were saying before, Megan, about, um, you know, those with the least capacity to speak up about this type of behaviour are the ones that unfortunately will endure it the most because they're less likely to have the confidence to say, no, that's not right, or um, advocate for other options. So some of that responsibility is on, you know, our shoulders as, you know, advocates or researchers or support coordinators to try and make things better for other people as well. Yeah, absolutely. And just um, on that, I you've just reminded me of a participant in the research who talked about feeling um, like this other resident in a group home situation was the favourite because they were nonverbal and not able to say no and I don't want that. So they were less difficult. Um, and they spoke about, oh, she was the favourite because she couldn't complain, whereas I was really difficult because I could say what I wanted, which, as you say, is that abuse of people who can't speak up and putting up with, you know, substandard support or worse um, when, yeah, then the other people feel like they shouldn't be. So, yeah, definitely that's where the advocacy is really important that we're not letting that happen. Yeah, and I think it's really important that people know that they can complain, you know, that there are, you know, that they have rights under the NDS Code of Conduct. Um, and then all, all support workers, um, whether they're registered or unregistered, have to, have to comply with that um, code of conduct. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And support workers need to be aware, making participants aware that that's possible as well if people aren't or people need to be, um, yeah, supported to make complaints if that's necessary. Yeah, and I also know that the kind of the that Commission can support people through, you know, yeah, compliance. So, you know, if they're having an issue with a support worker, they can get the two of you together and help you work through what's going on. I like that there is the the code of conduct. I think not, not as many people know about it as they should. Um, and I think, again, the code of conduct, lots of the points in there are, you know, common sense, but unfortunately... Um, you know, there there are often breaches of of the code of conduct. Um, but I think what I would like to see to make it a bit more powerful is some some examples of of there actually being providers you know held accountable to it publicly. Because I, I can't really think of anything where there's been a breach of the code of conduct and there's been any action against the the provider. So I think for me to make it more effective. Um, they could be a bit more, um, you know, publicly um, promoting of it actually being implemented and used. Yeah, absolutely, communicating that. Because yeah. I think there's a lot of privacy, you know, around it, and I can understand mm. the reason for that, but obviously um, it's, it's important that we see um, people get the support that they need to, yep. you know, address issues where they're subjected to either abuse or, or violence or neglect. Yep. It's really important that people do um, speak with the commission and they're there to help. That's what they're there to do. Mm-hmm. So um, before we go, there's two things I want to make sure 
religion that I haven't missed anything in terms of your your key findings. Is there anything else for that? Um, I think we've covered most things. Um, I was going to talk about um, the importance of the support worker really wanting to be a support worker, but Carl did touch on that earlier, but that really came through in the research as well, that they, you know, they knew when support workers were there to just fill in a job or just for money or whatever other reason, whereas those who really come understanding what the role is and wanting to do it are those who commit and the who are reliable. It makes sense, but unfortunately it's not always the case. Um, and I also just wanted to highlight, because I don't want this to come off, um, that there are many fantastic support workers that people also talked about and they did have those people that really did see them as the expert and ask what they want and ask for feedback and all of those elements. So this isn't to say that that isn't happening. It's just saying that it's not happening all sector wide. And um, yeah, there's lots of room for improvement. Um, But the main messaging is just to say that disability support, needing disability support shouldn't rob people of their selfhood or their choice or their control. And we need to make sure that that isn't happening. Yeah, can I take it a step further and say that needing their support should, you know, enhance your life um, instead of make it better. Um, and, and, you know, if you're, if you're a support worker, you need to keep that front and centre of your, your work, that you're there to, you know, to, to provide a service that enhances a person's life. Absolutely. But, Let's talk about the implications, Carl and Megan. What do you think are some of the uh, implications of this research? Let's start with you, Carl. Yeah, well, one of the, the big ones I can see is that there, there needs to be more input of people with disability in the actual training that is provided to support workers. Um, and that's training, you know, on-the-job training, but also in terms of the, the written materials and the teaching of materials, um, it would be great seeing people who need support work teaching, you know, people Certificate 3, Certificate 4 um, in TAFE. You know, it'll also get people with disability in more jobs, which is another you know, different topic. Um, but I think, you know, you, you can't talk about what people with disability needs uh, in as a separate, um, you know, thing that just affects other people, you know, if it's coming from the person who it affects the most, it's more authentic um, and probably higher quality as well. Um, and, and, you know, I, I always like equivalising disability with other marginalised groups. You know, you wouldn't have a course on LGBTQI rights, um, you know, written and delivered by a, a white straight man, um, nor should you. And but this type of thing happens in disability all the time. And I think if we really want to improve outcomes, we need to make sure that people with disability are heavily involved at conception all the way through to delivery for, for training. Oh, absolutely. I also think that we need to do more to value and support on the job training. You know, like I, I actually think that India is packages should have more funding for shadow shifts and for that that uh 
that learning that, that you need to be doing face-to-face with the person in that context of their life, yeah? Yeah, yeah. I think I think at the moment, you know, the NDIS's position on on shadow shifts is it should just be something that is um, a cost that's worn by the provider. Um, but as you can probably appreciate, most providers are trying to, you know, save as much money as possible, so they probably forego lots of that um, on the job training, which is very important. So, so prioritising that could be a really good way of getting people real experience. Yeah. I also think that shadow shifts are a chance to get to know the worker and make sure that the job is the right fit um, for them yeah. or that you are the right fit for them and that they're the right fit for you, right? Or we, we should have important compatibilities. Yeah, and, and, and not even shadow shifts in terms of jobs but also for placement for people who are studying. I think there's not, not, not much focus on placement and lots of it just through online quizzes or exams and things where that's not really, you know, the, the one way of going about it and needs to be on the job training too. Megan? Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely echo everything you've both just been saying and I completely agree. We can't go any further with this um, without working with people with disability to develop those kind of next steps. And I really do think this research really platforms people with disability as the experts and demonstrate as we've been saying, it's people with disability who know best and know what quality support looks like. And those next steps, I completely agree, needs to be people with disability delivering the training and also the flip side being supported to train support workers to, um, and that's not only for people, as we've talked about um, earlier, people who maybe don't have the capacity in the moment to train their support workers or lead their supports in the way that um, you know, they may not be able to say what they need, but it's finding mechanisms to support those peoples to do so. Um, so I think there's a lot of work to be done, um, but I think this is kind of building that evidence base. And then what I will say is from here, um, we want to work, continue to work with disability to kind of build those next steps and continually evaluate everything as we go on. So we've got that continual feedback loop um, because if it doesn't work for people with disability, then there's no no point in doing it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think it just really platforms that um, people with disability are the people we need to ask. And also, um, I think it shows, again, that it's the individualised support is what's key. Um, and I don't think one size fits all kind of training is the answer to individualised support. It almost seems a contradiction in terms and um, I, the participants in my research really that wasn't what they platformed they platformed the attitude of the person that willingness to learn um, and the compatibility as we've talked about so I think they're where we really need to focus. Yeah absolutely I think that um, you know one size fits all qualifications and um, send a wrong message and we, we need to uh, make sure that people can yeah, have 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 a range of training options available to them, and you know, also hire people who might not have qualifications because it sounds like from our experiences and from the participants that you spoke to that 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 our certificates are, are not really the key uh, when it comes to quality. 
And what one person might need in terms of those technical competencies is different to the next person. So it's kind of building that personalized training plan for that person. It's like, well, I need someone who's able to do X, Y, Z. So then there needs to be the training opportunity for that person to go and learn that skill rather than learn all the other skills they don't need for that person. Um, So, yeah, it's just, again, that individualized approach. So what's next for the research? So um, as I mentioned at the start, this is part of my PhD research, and I'm also exploring the perspective of support workers on this same question and also close others of people with disability. So those papers are written and um, hopefully will be published soon. And then I plan to bring the three perspectives together to build a kind of holistic model of what quality support looks like. And then with that basis, I'd like to do a co-design study working with people with disability to kind of develop those next steps that we've been talking about um, and kind of evaluate as we go um, so that we can hopefully use this evidence base to develop those um, solutions and help improve the quality of support. That is the goal. Oh, I love it so much. It sounds very, very useful, you know, like we need useful research um, in in this sector and it don't, I, can't even, I can't even think of any other piece of research that would be as useful as what you're doing. So thank you for doing what you're doing. Carl, any last thoughts from you? Um, I, I think... It- What's also important is, um, you know, whenever whenever anyone is doing a job, if if the person you're doing a job for, you know, enjoys what you're doing and they get satisfaction from the work that you're providing, um, it gives you satisfaction as well. So, um, you know, if a support worker is providing good quality support and the client or the participant, you know, really loves that and appreciates that, then it makes the support worker feel good as well. And makes them want to stay in the role for longer, and and want to um, tell other people about you know the day, and and encourage other people to join the sector and all of that. Um, so it's it's really you know quality is not just for people with disability. Obviously, it's most important for them, um, for us, but it's also important because it raises the 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 standard um, and encourages support workers to to stay in the sector and to to not leave and not get, you know, put, pulled over to the aged care or to nursing or, you know, and that's important because there are those big um, workforce supply issues that are a real problem and so we need to also work out how to keep support workers in the support worker role as well. Yeah, so well said. Thanks, Carl. Thank you to both of you. Thanks, Megan. Thank you, Carl. And uh, I, I really appreciate your time today and, I reckon we could talk for, for forever about this. Um, I think we'll do another episode looking at uh, the support worker perspective. What do you think, Megan? I'd love to. That sounds great. <laughs> we Excellent. could keep going. Sounds good. Excellent. Thanks, guys. Thank Excellent. you. Bye. Bye. That's all we have time for on today's episode of Reasonable and Necessary. Thank you to our podcast partner for this episode, the NDS Autism Safeguards Commission. 
through notifiers of episodes, don't forget to hit the subscribe button and the notification bell. Thanks for listening, and until next time, stay well and reasonable.